Chapter 13 of The House by the Lock by Mrs. C. N. Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter 13 Kismet and Miss Cunningham. Had I paused for an instant's reflection, I must have felt it would be impossible for me to take any open notice of the ring. But so great was my surprise at seeing Harvey Farnham's treasured possession on Miss Cunningham's finger that involuntarily I uttered a slight exclamation. Biting her lip, she hastily withdrew the hand, dashing the pen she had been holding with a petulant little gesture on to the desk where she had been writing. "'Why do you look so astonished?' she cried, a certain bitterness in her voice at seeing me wear the sign of my bondage. She tried to laugh as she spoke, giving an effect of lightness to the words, but the effort was a failure. I would not let her continue to think that she was right in the guess she had made as to my emotion. "'It was not wholly that, Miss Cunningham,' I returned. "'Say, rather, I was surprised at seeing you wear this particular ring.' "'It is a remarkable one, isn't it?' far too gorgeous and conspicuous to please me for myself, but Mr. Wildred was anxious for me to have it. I believe it has been in his family a long time, and has been handed down from generation to generation of betrothed brides, happier than myself. The last three words were spoken almost in a whisper, but I heard and understood them as I would have understood the faintest murmur from those lips so dearly loved. Some dim awakening thought, scarcely clear to my own consciousness, stirred in my mind at her strange announcement. I could not resist further questioning. "'Did Mr. Wildred tell you that the ring was an heirloom in his family?' "'Yes, there is a romance attached to it.' She sighed faintly, as though at the death of romance in her own young life. Then, more quickly, "'Why, Mr. Stanton, why do you ask me that?' I could not tell her why, but my heart was bounding with a new excitement. "'Forgive my curiosity,' I said evasively. "'I am interested in all that concerns you.' She turned from me, ostensibly to arrange her scattered papers on the little Davenport, and, relieved of the thraldom of those lovely eyes, I endeavored to collect my scattered thoughts." Somehow I felt that I was on the eve of a discovery which might be of vast importance in both our lives. How had Wildred obtained that ring from Harvey Farnham? Why had he lied about it to Karen? That he was a villain and a schemer, I was sure, though I had had no possible means of proving it. What if this seemingly small matter should put a clue into my hands? So clever a scoundrel should not have committed himself to a lie thus easily disproved, I thought. Only necessary lies were worth the risk for a man of acumen such as his. But even the most crafty of mortals is fallible, I reflected, and liable to make some insignificant mistake, which, like one stone wrongly placed in the foundation of a vast building, renders the whole structure unstable. Possibly Wildred had found a stealthy pleasure in weaving a pretty romance round the ring which he had chosen as the sign of his betrothal, 
and in weaving it he had forgotten that I, as an acquaintance of Farnham's, might have been conversant with its real history. Or, perhaps, he had not counted upon the fact that Karen might retell the version he had given her to me. I know how greatly Farnham had valued the marvelous diamond in its quaint setting, and I remembered how, only on the night of our last meeting, he had reiterated to me his determination to keep it. It was too small to be removed, save by cutting, he had said, and I had satisfied myself by observation that he had not exaggerated. He must then have gone so far as to have the ring cut from his finger before sailing for America, that he might leave it as a parting pledge of friendship with Carson Wildred. The rich red-gold circlet hung loosely enough, however, on Karen's slim little finger, and a sudden strong desire that she should allow me to look at it caught hold of me. "'Would it be asking too much,' I said, "'to have the wonderful heirloom in my hand to examine for a moment?' Without a word she slipped the ring off and gave it to me, almost as though it was a relief to feel its absence. In a flash a certain recollection had leaped into my mind. There was an inscription inside, Harvey Farnham had told me. If the ring had been cut, doubtless the words written within would show some trace of the violent treatment to which the band of gold had been subjected, and I wished, for a reason I hardly dared admit to myself, to ascertain if this were the case. I moved towards the window, and, ostensibly catching the light upon the facets of the matchless stone, peeped into the circlet. To my surprise, the words inscribed on the gold were, Kismet and Miss Cunningham. They were absolutely unbroken, not a letter blurred, and the surface of the ring gave the appearance of having been untouched since first it was fashioned. I was certain that it had not been cut. This being so, how had the ring been removed from the finger of its owner? "'You are wondering at the words written inside, aren't you?' Karen asked, coming a little nearer to me. "'It does seem extraordinary that they should be there, doesn't it, when you think that the ring was made many years ago, and was not intended for me at all? But Mr. Wildred has explained the mystery, which is a part of the history of the heirloom, and accounts for his being particularly anxious for me to wear it. I, too, could have explained the mystery. I had been told by Farnham that the stone had come from the first diamond mine in which he had been interested. It had been fancifully dubbed Kismet, and the gold mine, which he had lately sold to Carson Wildred, had, as he had informed me that night of our meeting at the theatre, rejoiced in the name of the Miss Cunningham. Doubtless the inscription was intended to commemorate the fact that the gold forming the ring had been taken from the one mine, the diamond, from the other. But, knowing all this, I was none the less anxious to hear what Karen might have to say. "'It does sound an odd coincidence,' I remarked. "'Will you tell me the story?' I had a very specific object in carrying on this conversation, but as for Karen, I could feel that her part of it was sustained merely for the sake of keeping me from treading upon more dangerous ground. Yet despite this nervous anxiety of hers, 
I could see, or I flattered myself, that she was vaguely surprised and piqued that I should be willing to discuss so trifling a subject during the fleeting moments before Lady Tressidy might be expected to appear. "'You may hear the little romance if you like,' the girl said, a faint wistfulness in her sweet voice. Sixty or seventy years ago, Mr. Wildred tells me, a very dashing ancestor of his fell in love with a Miss Cunningham. That is not a very uncommon name, you know. He was penniless, and she an heiress. Her father would have nothing to do with him, and told him he need not hope to win his daughter unless, within a year, he could afford to buy her the finest diamond betrothal ring ever seen in the country. The lover vowed it was kismet that he should marry Miss Cunningham, and swore to return and claim her by slipping such a ring on her finger, exactly twelve months from the day he was sent away. He had the most extraordinary adventures in search of a fortune, always ending in failure, until the last month of the appointed time. He was in India, working in the diamond mines, when one day he found this very stone. He sailed at once for England, had the ring made, and the words you see engraved inside. As he had said, he arrived on the very day appointed, but only to find the girl coming out from church after her marriage with another man. He threw the ring at her feet and flung himself away. But at her death it was sent back to him again, and though he never married, he gave it to his brother's bride on her wedding day. Since then it has remained in the Wildred family. I could have laughed aloud at this sentimental tale invented by the man whom I now believed had somehow contrived to steal the jewel, to account for the commonplace words it would have been difficult to erase. Had I laughed, however, my laughter would have been bitter indeed ending in an even increased desire to save from him and his trickery the girl I loved. It is needless to say that I did not laugh, but something of what was in my mind must have been visible on my face, for Karen, as she finished her story, looked up at me searchingly. "'What are you hiding from me, Mr. Stanton?' she anxiously questioned. "'It is about the ring, and if you are my friend, as you say, you will not keep it a secret from me. It is about the ring, Miss Cunningham, I replied impulsively. I can't tell you all, for the facts have hardly yet grouped themselves in my own brain. But if they have such bearing upon your happiness as I have some reason to think, you shall know them as soon as I can make them clear to you. Will you trust me, meanwhile? Will you try to remember that I am striving to collect facts which may help to release you from the necessity for an unworthy marriage? Never for one moment since I saw you last have I let slip the hope of saving you from what you confessed must be a blighted future. Now, I may be mistaken, but I believe that I begin to see my way. She looked at the ring which I had returned to her with startled, dilating eyes. "'Something connected with this?' she murmured. "'Yes, it is as if I had placed my eye to that little circlet, looking through it as through a spyglass towards my goal. 
I shall work after this, Miss Cunningham, as I could not work before, because I have now a fixed starting point. It may be an intricate tangle that I shall have to unravel. It may be a tedious task, yet... There are only six weeks, less than six weeks to do it in, she murmured, but a faint color had sprung to her cheeks, a light of hope to her eyes. Is it not possible, I begged, if I find myself near success, yet stopped temporarily midway by some unforeseeable obstacle, that you can delay your marriage? Let me have that to hope for. It will help me to win. She shook her head sadly, and the rose flush died. "'It is useless to think of it,' she said. "'You may imagine, since I have confessed so much to you, that it was not my plan to name such an early date. It was Mr. Wildred who suggested it. Indeed, he insisted, and unfortunately he is in a position to insist. "'Has nothing changed since we met at the Savoy?' I hurriedly asked. "'Can't you explain to me the power which you admitted then that this man holds over you?' "'No, nothing has changed, Mr. Stanton. The reason that I cannot explain is a part of his power, if you like to call it that.' "'Heaven knows I do not like it,' I exclaimed almost savagely. And as the words fell from my lips, Lady Tressidy entered the room. She had finished superintending her packing, and the sight of her was a sudden sharp reminder that next day she would take Karen away. End of chapter 13 Recording by Roger Moline